Numbers chapter 25, another passage of Scripture that is repeated once again in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, when he refers to those in the Old Testament being examples for us and in the context it's, it's examples of what we should not do, he mentions about those that died, 23,000 of them, and this is what he is referring to, this account here, when the Israelites once again turned from the Lord their God to serve another God altogether. This is still the particular generation that has been wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, they're wandering, and within this time frame, we saw a number of the things that had happened and the things that occurred and how they rebelled against the word of the Lord and they wanted to turn back to Egypt and all of this. Well, here in this particular instance, they just all together begin to worship another god. This wasn't the same uh, situation as when they had first come out of Egypt, when Moses is up on the mountain and they go to Aaron and they say, make us a god like the nations, and Aaron makes the golden calf, and they call that calf, that, that image, they called it Yahweh, the God of Israel. This isn't, this isn't that case. Not the same circumstances. They have altogether allied themselves with another god. Specifically, Baal, or Baal, however you want to pronounce that. It is enticed by a particular individual that is referred to in the New Testament, Balaam. And we'll look at this in, in a little bit more detail as far as what he did. It's not mentioned here. In chapter 25, it's actually mentioned later on, and we'll look at that passage as well, that you have this particular man who is supposed to be serving the living God as he has identified himself with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. <clears throat> he is not actually called a prophet is the thing. There's a much debate concerning this man uh, when it comes to Balaam. And actually, when you go to Joshua chapter 13, when the children of Israel get into the promised land as they're conquering it, He's one of the ones that they kill. And it says that Balaam, it says, and they also killed Balaam, the son of uh, Baor, who uh, was the diviner, I think is how it put it, the diviner, the soothsayer. So he's not called a prophet, and yet the Lord uses him in this way within these few chapters here. But he is supposed to be representing the Lord. What he ends up doing instead, after he even blesses the people of Israel, is that he explains to the king of Moab how he can make... Israel stumble. That was the whole goal of Balaam being called by the king of Moab. As the children of Israel are coming through his land, he, he can't go out and fight against them because they'll win. So he calls Balaam, whose name means the devourer. And it, so it seems as if Balaam himself was probably, uh, again, um, a diviner, a soothsayer, one who pronounced blessings and curses and was known for that, that practice. Even after Balaam is is pronouncing blessings and acknowledging the God of Israel, Yahweh. He still resorts to <clears throat> explaining to the king of Moab how he can make them stumble, though he is supposed to be one representing the Lord, the living God. In this 
after this occurs, and it's not mentioned here probably because the focus of this whole passage is where Israel themselves, not even about Moab, not even them doing the enticing, the judgment here is given towards Israel, his people, his covenant people, because they themselves are the ones that have committed idolatry. They played the harlot, not Moab. They're, they're doing what they naturally do. This is God's covenant people <clears throat> that has taken upon themselves after seeing everything that the Lord had done and all the blessing of the Lord. Again, this is something that has been reiterated every time that we come together these past number of Wednesdays that has been emphasized is the blessing of God and the mercy of God that he has provided to this people. And they have spurned him once again and have committed gross idolatry. They're not zealous for the Lord. They're not jealous for his namesake. It's, it's as if they're just there. They're not, they're not desirous to commit themselves to the Lord. They're just there. They're, they, they have no passion for the Lord and his glory. And so when they do this, they're treating him as any other God. Well, we have worshipped you and now we're going to go worship this God. And put them on equal standing. And because the Lord is jealous for his own glory. Because who are you going to compare him to? When it comes to the Lord in comparison with anyone else or anything else. What are you going to compare him to? There's nothing. He is the only living God. The only glorious and majestic one. The only one who is worthy of of honor and praise and thanks and blessing and all of these things that we are to render unto him. And yet, the people of Israel did not regard him as holy or honor his name, but brought up another God, or rather brought him down to the level of another God and treated him as common. He's like any other God. You know, the scriptures warn us of doing such things that you cannot serve two masters you cannot drink the cup of demons in the cup of the Lord. You cannot, what, what fellowship has light with, with darkness, all of this language that the scripture uses, in order to try to emphasize to the people of God the, the glorious nature of, of, of God in comparison with anything else. Nothing else should be taking his place. And yet so often that is what happens. And so often within the church today you have those that instead of being out front being zealous for the glory of God, have compromised themselves, have compromised their churches, and have actually emphasized the very things that caused the people of God to stumble. It is a very tragic situation that many churches find themselves in, and they have put themselves there on their own by compromising and leading the people to do the same. This passage here, there is one individual that is really brought out and, and set before us in this particular chapter, one who was not mentioned but one other time uh, so far. Only in Exodus was this man previously even referred to, and it was only referring to his birth, and that's Phineas. Phineas is the son of Eliezer, who is the son of Aaron. This nobody priest is the very one who showed himself to be the most zealous for the glory of God, and God blessed him as a result of it. Even in the face of everything that was going on, he stood courageous, and his, his, his love for the Lord and his zealousness for the Lord 
had, had shined forth, and as a result, the Lord had blessed him and the people of God thereafter for generations to come. Remember what this man had done. The Lord can use, this isn't to say that just because we're zealous for the Lord that the Lord is going to make our names great or whatever, but it is to say that we should indeed be zealous for the Lord in trying to purify the church and to, to keep in check the sin that, that tries to invade the church. Keep it out. Keep it out of our lives. That's being zealous for the glory of God. Let nothing else take the place of the Lord. Let not sin take the place of my enjoyment with the Lord. He is, he is one of the figures that, that really stands out here. And what a great example that he is. While we understand the example that is laid before us of how we are not to do, according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we do have a great example here of what is delighting in the eyes of God. So there's much to look at here in this passage, and I pray that it would indeed uh, produce such a... a a greater commitment and devotion in our hearts uh, for the glory and the honor of God and how we live before him. If you would, please stand with me <clears throat> for the reading of God's word. We'll read Numbers chapter 25 and we'll read the chapter verses 1 to 18. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to it. Verse 1, while Israel remained at Shedem, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. So that the fierce anger of the Lord may, may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now the name of the slain man of Israel, who was slain with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu. And the leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the head of the people of the father's household in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. 
For they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of, in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister, who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we again come into your presence. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would move within our hearts, producing this kind of jealousy, this kind of zeal for you, that you would be honored in our homes, honored in the church. We will be zealous for your glory. Father, I bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this is one of those instances that you look at what exactly is happening here, and not only do you have many people committing such a great act of gross idolatry, and yet in the midst of this, and in the midst of the people weeping because of what has happened, you have one individual who has no shame whatsoever to take one of the women while the congregation is gathered at the tent of meeting, weeping because of what is happening, to take this woman into his own tent to commit immorality with her. And it says that he done it in the sight of Moses. He was arrogant, very prideful, very open. It's amazing in some of these instances in which you see not only the depravity of man, but you see even greater depravity among the others. Of just how far we can really go if it weren't for the grace of God. Now, what is happening here is a result of, again, Balaam. Balaam is introduced to us back in chapter 22. And just reading a little bit of this, in chapter 22, beginning verse 1, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they are, and they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may, I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their land. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. So here's, here's the interesting things of what Balaam says to them. He said, Spend the night here, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord. And notice that's all capitals. That's Yahweh. I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, 
Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they cover the service of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go out with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So there's an instance here in which the Lord is actually speaking to Balaam. Balaam is claiming to represent Yahweh. He's using that language there, the sacred name of God. And perhaps what has happened in the time in which the Israelites have come out of Egypt and all the things that have taken place thus far, word has gotten out. And actually, if you just go back to what had happened in Egypt itself, and you look at what Paul says in Romans 9, for this reason I raised you up to declare my glory through you, right? So what happened in Egypt, the word of the Lord has gone forth. His fame, if you will, on what had happened to Egypt. What has happened to the, some of these others, other nations as they have made their way through. Word has gotten out. And Balaam is living at Pethor, which is near the river. And you'll notice that's in, in capitals. That's in the Euphrates River. He's in Mesopotamia. And he knows about Yahweh, the God of Israel, claiming to represent him. Now, we don't know, there, there's much debate about Balaam, whether he is an actual priest of the Most High God, is he a false priest, and again, it seems to lean more towards, since they have the fees for divination, and they're going to this man, and he's called the diviner in Joshua chapter 13, that he really is not a priest of the Most High God. Probably what has happened, according to some theologians, is that since he is most likely grown up in this, this particular uh, divination that he does and soothsaying this is probably hereditary his father probably done it as well as the idea that he has adopted the gods of the nations that he comes in contact with and now you hear this one god who has done wonders that no one else has ever done and so he identifies himself now as a belonging to or serving rather yahweh and this isn't so far-fetched either this isn't even far-fetched in the sense that you could have an unregenerate man like Balaam in the Lord speaking to him. Many theologians would agree that Saul, not, not the Saul that became Paul, but King Saul, uh, was himself unconverted. And yet when the Spirit of God came upon him, he began to prophesy. You also have an instance in Deuteronomy chapter 13, when the Lord warns his people... <clears throat> He says to them in chapter 13, Deuteronomy, beginning verse 1. Now listen to the wording here. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. So he gives a sign or a wonder, and it actually comes true. He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. Now, <clears throat> you have instances in which these things are occurring. 
a dreamer of dreams or a diviner has come along and he has a sign or a wonder to accompany him in the sense of trying to lead the people of Israel astray. Um, you also have a couple of instances in the New Testament in which you have the Jewish exorcist, which is probably the same scenario here with, with Balaam. You have the Jewish exorcist in the book of Acts who are casting out devils in Jesus' name. Now, they're not believers in Jesus, but they've seen what power is in the name of Jesus, and so they begin to use his name in order to try to cast out these devils out of this particular man that we read of, the seven sons of Sceva. And then you had those wonderful words by the demon, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? And then the man leaps upon them and beats them. You also have an instance in Acts chapter 8 in which you have Simon Magus, who is referred to as a believer. He's baptized. But it came about that his true intentions were revealed when he goes to Peter because he sees the, these wonders that are being able to be done and the power that these people have. And so he goes to Peter and he says, I will give you money if you allow me that power. And Simon himself was a magician beforehand. So this is very similar to what is going on here with Balaam. He has identified himself as serving the true God, just as Simon Magus did, just as the Jewish exorcist did, because hearing all the fame of Yahweh and all the power that he has, has revealed, it would be very tempting for one who is claiming to be a soothsayer or a diviner to then identify themselves with the one that they're hearing. Wow, they... That God parted the Red Sea, etc., etc. That's most likely what is happening here. Now, we are told of a few different things about Balaam in the New Testament as far as his character. To help us understand a little bit more about this man, in 2 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> we read of him. We'll jump in here, verse 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you having eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin, enticing unstainable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That is what is said of him. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. And also in Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, this is to the church of Pergamum. The Lord says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So this is some of the character that we read of, of Balaam in, in the New Testament to give us a little bit more as far as his character. Because if you just read from chapters 22 on, you think to yourself, well, he must be a priest because he's seeking after the will of God. God appears to him, says, don't go with the men, and so he's not going to go. And so they inquire another time. And so Balaam says, okay, I'll inquire of the Lord again. And this time, the Lord says for him to go. And this is when you... You have a very interesting, um, interesting account here. Now, this is the second time. Verse 19 of chapter 22 of Numbers. Now, please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. The only word which I speak to you shall you do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back to the way, into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, so Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely killed you just now and let her live." You know, you know the interesting part of this whole story is after he strikes the donkey three times and the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey to say, why are you hitting me? He doesn't say, oh, well, you're, you're talking. You're, no, he just replies back because you've made a mockery of me. And then the Lord opens his eyes that he can see what the donkey was doing for him. So what ends up happening then in the chapters that come thereafter, he goes to the king of Moab. The king of Moab says, curse this people. And every time that Balaam opens his mouth to curse the people, blessings come out instead. Each time he tries, blessings come out instead. 
So by the end of this, nothing has occurred. The people have not been cursed by Balaam because the Lord has continued to put in his mouth only blessing. And so all we read of then in chapter 24, verse 25, is that Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. That, and it's interesting because of the specific blessings that, that Balaam talks about are things that we read of previously. So either the Lord had given him this, this knowledge at that particular point as the Lord is opening his mouth to only allow blessings to come out, or some of these things Balaam was um, perhaps had a little bit of knowledge of because of the fame of Yahweh that had went out into the world thus far. So here's what happens. Balaam can't curse them. So what he ends up doing, according to chapter 31 of Numbers, is he goes to the king and he tells the king how he can make them stumble. Now the king is already fearful of this people because if he goes out to war, he knows he's going to be defeated. So what then can he do? Well, if you can make this people to stumble and you can make this people commit idolatry, then the favor of the Lord won't be there. Then you can go out. Then you can attack. Then you can defeat. Maybe that's their idea. Maybe that's what they were thinking. So Balaam is the one who instructed the king how to make them stumble. So here's what happens. While Israel remained at Shechem, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And to play the harlot is referring both carnally and spiritually. And remember what our Lord said in Revelation chapter 3 there that they followed the way of Balaam and they committed immorality. And it's meaning sexual immorality. So they begin to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. So apparently Balaam was saying to the king, take all your beautiful women, have them to go out and entice the men. That's, a, that's the plan. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed to their gods. The men were enticed by the women, by the daughters of Moab, so much so that I don't really know exactly how long of a period of time we have here. If this happened in a day or in a couple days, maybe a week, whatever the case is, they formed some kind of a friendship, some kind of a bond with them, and enticed them to come into their land to sacrifice to their gods. To celebrate their gods with these feasts. And to bow down to them. They had, for, they had once again forsaken the Lord their God, but they had gone even further than the previous times. There was no checking the sin at the door and saying, No, our Lord has told us that we shall only worship Him, Him alone. This is in the law that has already been given. But instead, because of the darkness of their hearts and their unbelief, they brought the Lord down to the same level as this other God. We worshiped you. We can go worship this God over here. Perhaps we're in his land. And so maybe we ought to honor him since we're in his land. And once we get to our land, then we'll go back to worshiping you. Who knows what they were thinking? But the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel had joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. 
They had played the harlot. They were enticed. They're celebrating their gods. They're committing acts of immorality with them. They had joined themselves to Baal of Peor, who is the god of war, who, has, who carries another name, Kamash. They, and it means they had, they had bound themselves as to a person. They had bound themselves to Baal of Peor. This particular god, in his honor, women and virgins would prostitute themselves for him. And so it is these kinds of things that are happening here. This isn't just acts of, acts of idolatry. This is, this is gross immorality. Gross idolatry. They're not just bowing down to another god, but they are committing these sexual acts in the worship of these gods, or this particular god, just as the other nation had done. Their common practice. And so the Lord was angry against Israel. And rightly so. Who is Baal compared to the Lord? Who is he? He's a false god. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't have arms that can reach out to help. He's a statue. That's all he is. He's nothing. Even if you look at the, the gods of the people and you have demonic forces behind them, even if you look at it in that kind of a way, who are they compared to their creator? Nothing. Not worthy of any praise, not worthy of any thanks. They are only there to cause people to stumble into greater sin, only to cause more harm. And Israel had been instructed thus far on the purity that they are to be before the Lord, that he has, he has chosen them out of all the nations of the earth to extend his love and his grace to them, that they should serve him only because he alone, it wasn't Baal that had redeemed them from Egypt. It was the Lord. And after all of that, the law that had been given to instruct them, the things that they had seen of the majesty of God. In the darkness of their hearts, they turned aside and committed gross acts of idolatry. And so the Lord, in His righteous anger, because He's jealous for His namesake, He's jealous for His glory. Because again, if we compare, if we put anything else on equal standing with Him, then we are diminishing Him. We are diminishing who he is, that he is the thrice holy God that none can compare to. Nothing else is to be on equal standing with the Lord. No other God, no other created thing whatsoever. He is unique and that's why he is worthy of praise. There is none like him. So the Lord says to Moses, take all the leaders of the people. All the ones who have done this, who had, who had brought themselves in, in, into this, this idolatry, execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses does give this command. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each one of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Now, Here's, the, here's something to think about. Because of all of this, once everything is done, in verse 9, we read of 24,000 that fell. 24,000 that died. When you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
when Paul is referring to this, he says 23,000. When you look at, and we'll look at this in a little bit, when you look at Psalm 106, Psalm 106 is recounting this very thing and speaking of the plague that befell the people. So in, in addition to Moses saying to the men to carry out the execution of some of these, a plague of the Lord was there as well. Perhaps, as many theologians would think, that Paul only has in mind just the plague itself that was, that was given directly from the Lord rather than the thousand that were killed by the other leaders of Israel. That's just a footnote, by the way. There's a plague going on here, too. Now, as this is occurring, these men are being killed in broad daylight because they have, they have allied themselves with a false god. The people are standing at the tent of meeting where the Lord would meet with His people. They are weeping because of the great sin that has, been, that is, that has come through the people of God. How they have forsaken the God who redeemed them. In the midst of all of this, then we read of this particular man, his name Zimri, one of the sons of Israel. He came and he brought to his relatives a Midianite woman into his relatives' camp. He brings this Midianite woman, not just to commit immorality with her, but he brings her into the camp. In the camp that is at this particular time, purging itself of the evil that has befell it, he brings her in, in the sight of Moses. He doesn't care. That's the only thing you can come up with. If he can do this in the sight of Moses, who is the only mediator at this particular point, who has been speaking to the Lord as face-to-face as it is described for us elsewhere, and he can look and he can see, Moses can see him, and he doesn't care, and he's still taking her into the tent. What kind of, what kind of depravity is that? That he would commit such an act in, 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 the, in the presence of God, in the camp. But these things also happen within the church. If you remember this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. That's, it. That's what he says. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed will be removed from your sight. They prided themselves in what was happening. They were arrogant, knowing these things were occurring and did nothing. And this one who had done it, done the act himself, he was walking around proud in the church. That is not a far-fetched uh, circumstance or situation to have occur. And the people of God in the church weren't doing anything. That kind of pride, that kind of arrogance, that haughty spirit can be present even to this extent, even among the people of God. So, in the sight of all the congregation of Israel, he does this. Takes her into his tent to commit immorality with her. 
this one priest who, the, who previous to this, the only thing that was ever mentioned about him was his name at his birth in the book of Exodus. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, this is meaning into the inner division of the tent, and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. He takes a spear in his hand because he is zealous for the Lord. He is angered by what this man is doing. After everything that is being done, the Lord is pouring out judgment upon the people through a plague and, and the people being killed by their own. And seeing this angered him to the extent that he's so zealous for the glory of God and what the wicked man is doing. He follows them into the tent and in the very act of what they are doing, he pierces them both through with a spear. And because he did this, because he was zealous for the Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 10. And he says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous from my je with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. This nobody priest who had grown up under Eliezer, who was the son of Aaron, being taught of who God was, had grown to love the Lord, be committed to the Lord, so that this gross idolatrous act that was occurring and the violation of what was occurring in the camp by this man was enough that it put him into action because he loved the Lord that much. He was zealous. He was jealous. And the Lord says he was jealous with my jealousy. The Lord is jealous for his own glory because who is like him? And Phineas was saying, who is like him? There's no one like him. Look at what you're doing. And so there was a great love and, and commitment and devotion that Phineas had for the Lord that he acted in such a way. Now, this isn't to say that we need to go and find people who are committing idolatrous acts or immorality and run them through with a spear or a weapon of any kind. But it is to teach us of what kind of, of jealousy that we need to have for the Lord our God in trying to keep pure our own lives and the life of the church that we don't tolerate these acts of immorality and idolatry. And it is a great warning to us as well in the sense of we don't bring the Lord down on level with something else and we take delight in this and we disregard Him and then at times we'll take delight in Him as we disregard this. He is the only one that is to keep our focus in our hearts. He is the only one who is to capture our hearts. And so if we're, if we're battling with something, then we need to remove it. We need to remove it so that we can give ourselves over to the one who matters. There has to be a, a zealous nature that the people of God have for His glory. For His honor and for His praise. 
to recognize that there is none like him. And we need to treat him then as holy. Other things in our life aren't to take the place of the Lord for one. And we don't need to be the ones who give an excuse for sin or that pass over sin. You know, one of the things that that happens a lot in churches is, is that when immorality goes on within the church and people know about it, they don't say anything. They don't say anything. Well, maybe it's none of our business to really say anything. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe the, the church leaders will find out on their own. No. We need to be zealous for the sake of the Lord that we take care of these things. That we approach those that we find within sin in order to, to restore them. That they would repent and restore them. But in the instance that they don't, and they want to commit their idolatrous acts or whatever it is that they're, that they're happening in their lives and they are unrepentant, then you do is what Paul says about that man who took his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5. Get him out. Purge the church of sin. And in doing so, we are being zealous for the name of the Lord. We are being zealous for the glory of the Lord and the honor of the Lord and the holiness of the Lord. His, his purity needs to be something that we're concerned about. That is represented within the church and among the body. Too many people today are giving advancements to those very things that cause others to stumble because they're unwilling to stand in the gap. They're unwilling to, to have an argument with somebody. They're unwilling to have people call them names. They're unwilling to, to feel bad. And so, so many are stumbling. So many are falling. So many, especially by many of these liberal guys, are being led right into hell. Because they don't care. They're unconcerned. Perhaps like Balaam, they love the wages of unrighteousness more than they do the, 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 the beauty and the majesty of the God that they claim to serve. We can't fall into those traps. We can't fall into a trap of not, not bringing about the, the truth to others for fear. Because we're doing them no favors. We're doing the church no favors. You're not doing any favor for yourself. You know, I think it was Vody Bauckham who said, if you diminish the gospel and you diminish the very, uh, the, the very uh, truth of, of the Christian faith altogether, just so other people would receive it, they're either going to do one of three things. Either they're going to laugh at you or they're going to ignore you altogether and walk away or they'll listen. But if you give them the unadulterated gospel and the true truths of the Christian faith, they're going to do one of three things. They're either going to laugh at you or they're going to altogether ignore you and walk away or they're going to listen to you. There is no difference in the responses of people whether you give them a, a watered-down gospel or a watered-down this rather than giving them the truth. People are always going to respond one of three ways. So you might as well give them the truth of God because it's the truth of God that he uses in order to apply to the heart that brings them to faith. 
Be zealous for the truth, not lies, not false ideas, just because we want to be accepted by others. We should be more concerned about being accepted by God and being used by God, being blessed by God because we followed what He said to do, because we loved Him more than we loved ourselves, more than we loved being in, in good standing with others, whatever the case is. We need to be zealous, as the Lord was. When he flips over the tables, and then that verse is quoted there, zeal for your house has consumed me. Because of the sin that was going on there, and our Lord wasn't having it. We shouldn't tolerate that either. Not in the sense of being mean to others or whatever, but in the sense of if we find it in the church, don't wait for some of us to try to find out at, at a later time. Let's deal with it. So that we can restore the person if they're, if they're guilty of whatever. Let's help them. Let's, let's call them to repentance. Let's come alongside them. But let's not let it fester because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is God's church. And we need to treat it as such. It's holy in his sight. And we should be viewing it that way too. So I know we're running out of time. Um, we'll stop there and we will continue next Wednesday. If you would, please stand with me. And let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we give you thanks once again for all that you are, all that you do. Father, help us to be jealous with your jealousy. Let us be consumed with, with great zeal for the Lord, for the purity of your people, of us in our individual lives. Father, let us not just be looking at each other. Let us look, look at ourselves and how we ought to, to change things or do, do right, do better, to treat you as holy in our individual life. Forgive us where we fail you, as we all have and we all do often. Help us to treat the church indeed as the glorious bride of Christ. Let us treat her with dignity and value as she is valued in your sight. Thank you so much for this passage, for, for what we learned from it. Let it not end here. Let the Spirit of God apply it to our hearts and produce a greater commitment and devotion, greater love for you and all that you are and all that you've done. Be among us, your people, and conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Thank you very much. You are dismissed.